Well, thank you, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> you are a blessing. <laughs> Is that a good speed? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, this is a blessing to be with you, and it's 9.41, and that means I'm starting early, and Ron is sitting on the front row praying that I will end early, and so we're going to hope that happens. Okay, uh, the God of the universe wants all of us to know and reorient our lives around the reality of the ending. Uh, it's always important, uh, even as a child, you were very interested asking your parents, uh, where are we going, when will we get there, those kind of things, when will this be over, uh, all these kind of things. Well, God knows what we need. And, and most of us, in order to journey correctly, have to have that destination point. We have to, we have to think about how we're going to get there, when we're going to get there, what we need, and between here and there. So God says, this is how it all ends. It's very interesting that he emphasizes it so much that, that he designs the final book of the book of books to be about how it all ends. So we started off in Matthew 6 and looked at that important element of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, and the implications of that. Then we went to Jesus in Matthew 24, uh, actually giving the, the outline of the book of Revelation. And then we started in the book of Revelation. We're on our six of eight stops on this journey. And what we're looking at is Jesus is focused on his church. And Revelation 1, and, and that's, we're still kind of trying to finish Revelation 1, and we're going to, you know, see how far we get today. Uh, God, because remember, that's how the book of Revelation starts, that, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to give to us. There's no other book in the Bible like that, that, that it's something God wants Jesus to give us. I mean, wow. And, and what does he want? He wants us to see what the implications are of Jesus being our creator. But he wrote it to a specific group of people. Uh, that's a picture of Turkey, and the left side is Greece, and, you know, Istanbul is up there on the Bosphorus. And by the way, you can even see where Peter wrote his epistles, you know, to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. There's Cappadocia. Asia, and Bithynia, and a lot of uh, believers, you know, when we read 1 Peter, we don't even know where Bithynia is. In fact, a lot of people don't even say it. I used to have a secretary when I was at uh, one of the churches I served, and we would study the Bible as a staff, and I would always have them read. Uh, we'd all read around and around the table, uh, and she would get to words like that, and she would say, hard word, hard word, hard word. She never even tried to pronounce them, so there's Bithynia. But look at that. See the yellow little kind of strange uh, shape there around the word Asia? Uh, Ephesus, going north, Smyrna, going way north, Pergamum, and then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and back to Ephesus. Most likely, all those churches were planted out of Ephesus. Most likely, John the Apostle, when he pastored there, following Timothy, following Paul, you know, the whole, the whole uh, ongoing work of the church, most likely those churches he was watching over because they were so important because that was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. It was the most Roman part of the empire. That's where they adopted emperor worship first. They wanted to worship the emperor himself. 
the Roman Empire uh, didn't believe in a creator. And so if, if God the Father wanted Jesus to get the church to, to understand the reality of all the wonders of Christ being our creator, they were going uphill and against the flow because the Roman Empire was centered around force and might and, and personality cults and emperor worship and a lot of immorality and everything else. And so right in the epicenter, as the empire was moving further and further eastward, that is the group that the Lord began ministering to. Uh, if you think about the context, and we always should think about the context, the only way to truly understand the scriptures is to understand the context. Just think of some of the realities. All four Gospels in the book of Acts were written and circulated before this book comes out, okay? And the other 21 epistles by Peter, 2, James 1, John 3, Paul 13, uh, the writer of Hebrews and Jude, are all written, read, copied, circulated, and the church has gone for over 60 years since Pentecost. Do you know why that's so important? The book of Revelation is about Jesus coming back and walking around the local churches like all of us are a part of and seeing how much the people were into the scriptures, not just into reading them or hearing them, but into living them. And that's what Revelation 2 and 3 is all about. 2 and 3 are all about how they're doing it, reading, obeying, and sharing the word. And Jesus comes back, he visits the churches, and he reports to the only apostle that's left. And, and he is old and endangered and on that prison island, but look at that. What are the last three words? What? Not alone. Do you, do you know what sociologists say is the, the most piercing human pain? It's, it's not, you know, shrapnel in the current war. It's not, you know, giving birth. Do you know what sociologists say after studying the fabric of society? The most piercing pain is feeling alone, detached, ignored, forsaken, forgotten. You know, all those things. Loneliness just cuts the deepest of all the emotions. You know what? John certainly was not alone. He was getting the message from God. The 22 chapters of Revelation, the 404 verses, are all about how to live for God in an ever-darkening world. And boy, if it was darkening in the first century, the dimmer doesn't have much further down to go, but we know it has a lot further down to go because there's coming a day when demons are going to be confined to the earth. And they're going to be for five months tormenting everyone, and then they're going to be in a rapid spree going through and allowed by God to kill every third human being. How would you like to be killed by a demon monster that you thought was just in one of those science fiction movies? No. It shows up, can come through the wall, no safe room protects you. I mean, that's what's coming. So it was an ever-darkening world, and Jesus had ascended back uh, after his 40 days after the resurrection from the Mount of Olives, and he said, I'm coming back the same way I went. And the way he went, if you remember from Luke 24, Jesus had his arms out, and he was blessing the disciples as they were below him. He was going, oh, Peter, 
You always have your foot in your mouth, but you're going to be my servant. And John, I loved you to the end. I'm coming back and seeing you, by the way. Oh, and Thomas, you're not doubting anymore. Can you imagine how Jesus was blessing as he was ascending up from the Mount of Olives? And as they watched him go away in the cloud, what did the angel say? This same Jesus, which is taken up for you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. How did he leave? Was he burning up? destroying everything in sight and the sword from his mouth destroying his enemies no 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 he was raining blessings and comforting see that's what we call the hope of believers that the same way jesus left blessing us and comforting us he's coming back and that's the blessed hope is of course the rapture so he left them with all that truth in the gospels the epistles everything was was spread widely the first generation to about 60 AD, sees Paul's public ministry kind of cut back. Uh, he spent most of his time in jail anyway, so he spent his last decade in jails because he was so good at it. And, and then finally, Paul's hunted down, Peter's hunted down, the rest of the apostles, they're martyred. And the second generation church is taking all those gospels and epistles, and, and they're growing and learning and everything. And so Jesus comes back. To walk around and see how they're doing and you know what's interesting he visited all the time in between but he just didn't tell us about it uh, what he found but boy in Revelation he gives us what's on that clipboard when he goes through and checks what's going on in all those churches uh, what we're doing well no what I am doing is I'm just showing you what I teach uh, Bonnie and I are this is my wonderful wife Bonnie the most distracting person in the world, the one person in the whole world I'd rather spend all my time with, and so I'm making a conscious choice to not be distracted and to talk to you. But Bonnie and I are missionaries. I was a pastor. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was at Bob Jones University, if you've ever heard of that, and I was expelled, by the way. Uh, and at Bob Jones University, I met John MacArthur, and he actually invited me to come on staff at his church. So I became a pastor with John MacArthur, and I was a seminary professor at the Master's Seminary. I could go on and on. Uh, I was in school for 37 years. Mike found that out, because uh, I'm a slow learner. But all of that to say that Bonnie and I, after decades in the pastoral ministry, we used to spend all of our vacation on missionary trips, and finally, the elders said, you know what, you like that an awful lot. I said, yeah. They said, how about if we send you out? And my local church, the last one I pastored, sent us out and picked up half of our support. And then all of the other people that we pastored over the years picked up the other half, and we got all of our 6100 a month in six weeks. Isn't that the way? That's how missionaries should raise their funds instead of wearing out their tires just I mean, just have people want to get rid of you, so they just support you. So, and so, not really, I'm teasing you. So Bonnie and I are, are servants of the Lord teaching the devotional method in Bible institutes. Uh, we spend a third of our time at Word of Life properties. I mean, I've spoken from down there in Argentina all the way, you know, to the Philippines in the jungle, to Korea, to, you know, Central uh, Europe, New York, uh, here, uh, all over the place. But we teach them how to take what Word of Life's already started. They all have to title every chapter of the Bible. It's a, an assignment for every BI student. I say, yep, I want you to title every chapter of the Bible in your own words, 
but to chapter design teaching, like I'm going now to teach Revelation up in New York next, and it's not as warm as it is here up there. And I say, I want you to find and note the lessons, truths, and doctrines, and in your own words, and use some study tools, but here's the, the transforming part. See, most people do Bible study. All of you do Bible study. We all do Bible study. We're amazed. We find things and everything else. And very often, we want to share what we find with other people because, boy, they really need that. And you know what most of us do? What I did my first year in the ministry in New England, I got up in the little old parsonage built by the DuPont family in 1828 that we lived in that was part of the church, and it didn't have any hallways because it was a colonial house and fireplaces and the whole thing, and so I didn't want to wake anybody up, so I got dressed in the dark, and I shaved in the dark, and I put on my shoes, whichever foot you put on first in the dark, and I went to my first Bible study, which is at 5.30, and I met with a group of men, and they were all as tired as I was, and after that Bible study, I left and stopped at my favorite donut shop on the way to the church office, and while I was there, a great big camera crew was there profiling that donut shop. It's called Alley's Donuts, and it's a historical site. And so this big camera crew came, and I walked out with my cup of coffee and my donut, and I talked on the, the evening news, saying, yep, I really, I, I really like this stuff. And then I went on to the office, and my dear secretary was very short, very spry, in her 80s, served all the pastors for generations. She looked at me and she said, uh, Pastor, why do you have your sweater on backward? <laughs> I had one of those big, you know, those big collar sweaters? And I didn't even notice that I had the big collar under here and the zipper. <laughs> Most men's sweaters don't have a zipper down the back. I thought... I went to that Bible study, and eight men <laughs> looked at me. I think that's one of your lists of the difference between men and women. Men don't care. They're not going to tell you that you need to turn your sweater around. And then I was on TV. Okay. And so I, the most important part of Bible study is, after we title and find lessons, to write a prayer in which we ask the Lord to unleash at least one of those truths or lessons not in their life, not in my wife who needs to read that, not in my husband, he needs to know that, my kids need that verse, my friend. No, I look in the mirror and I say, God, I want you to change my life. And you know what really ramps up the change? If you have a small group of people that you read. See, I started this study years back as a pastor, and I would get the men in the church, and we'd sit around the study, and I'd say, now I want you to read your application prayer out loud in front of everybody. They'd go, what? That's embarrassing. For me as a man to say, Lord, I want you to help me to be more sensitive to my wife, uh, more loving to my children, uh, more patient, uh, less greedy at work of whatever. I, that's embarrassing. I said, yeah, but that's how your life will change. Because that's what the Bible, the context of the Bible is. It was a group of people that were transparently experiencing the transformation of God in front of other believers who knew them and could say, you're right, you are far more patient than you were last year. I've known you for 10 years. You, you only gossip once a week now. and used to gossip all day long. You know, I see God at work. And see, that's how they turned the world 
upside down as the world thought. Okay, so here's my journal. All I've been doing this week is sharing. I type it out because you can't read my writing, and we're on the 11th observation that I made in the book of Revelation chapter 1, and here's the observation. This is what I wrote. The red part is my lesson. We can stay full of the Holy Spirit even through the worst of times. Okay, now look at your Bible. Let's see how I found that. Uh, go to Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 9. So just imagine we're sitting, you know, in Starbucks or Panera or Chipotle or wherever you go, and we're having a small group Bible study, and we all have our Bibles open and we're studying. And so we read chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, and then if you have verse 11 in your Bible and you have a red letter edition, what color is verse 11? Red. Yeah, it's Jesus. Remember I said John wasn't alone? Well, look at this. The Apostle John has endured the horrors of the destruction of Jerusalem. He remembered all the time he walked up there with Jesus. I mean, Jesus was always going to those feasts, and Jesus was always going there to teach. And, and Jerusalem, all roads lead up to it. It's up to Jerusalem because it's on a 3,000-foot-high plateau there in the mountains of Judea. And he, he realized, as he saw from afar, the horrors as in A.D. 70, that city was destroyed. And the massacre, a million fellow Jews, I bet John knew a lot of them, that were butchered, crucified 500 a day by Vespasian's son as Titus destroyed the city. And then John witnessed the systematic hunting down and martyrdom of all of his fellow apostles by the Roman Empire. And, and he had personally lived through the wickedness of Nero. I mean, do you remember Nero? Nero who killed his own mother, who killed his own wife, who, who I mean, he didn't just kill his wife, he, he kicked her to death. I mean, you talk about a way to kill someone, kicking them. I mean, we see that in clips in, in news reports, and we go, ugh, it's revolting. And he was the supreme leader of the world of that day. And he lived through that wickedness. And by the way, on the side, Nero was dipping believers in tar while they were alive and putting them on sticks, and he would have them on sticks all the way around his gigantic water uh, lake that was in front of his Domus Aurea, his golden house in Rome, and in front of that house was a lake, and he lit the lake with burning, flaming Christians. Remember Peter said enduring fiery trials in chapter 4 of 1 Peter? He was literal. He saw all that. And then the convulsion after Nero committed suicide, by the way, uh, the empire didn't like him either. He was horrible. So he committed suicide. So it convulsed. There were four emperors quickly. And now the very personal adversary of John was the son of the emperor that followed Nero, Vespasian, his son, was Domitian. And Domitian hunted down, captured, exiled, and left John far away from everybody who knew and loved him. What are the last two words? See, do you see the, the ongoing theme of this book? 
We're never alone. We're never forgotten. We're never unloved. We're never abandoned. We're never unappreciated. We're never worthless. We're never purposeless. We're never forsaken because of him who said, I will what? Never leave you or and there it was, true. Jesus even knew John was on Patmos. So that was my first observation and lesson. Uh, by the way, this book is a reminder that centuries of these godless and moral emperors that were absolute and ruthless were going to be coming. And the church was going to be going through three centuries of these men hunting, massacring, butchering, ruining people's lives. And Revelation was sent to guide believers to live through that. Not to escape it, not to fight it off. To live a life that reflected Christ through all of that. Okay, I'm still on verses 9 and 10 because there's more of it. Look, look what it says in verse uh, 9. Uh, I was on that island for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. And I was... In the what? Now, if someone checked on you after you'd been hunted down, everything taken away from you, bound, thrown into a boat, taken to a maximum security prison, and put in hard labor, and you're probably late 80s or early 90s, if someone checked in on you, would they, would they observe that you're in the spirit? Would they observe that I'm in the Spirit? I hope so. But John was. And it's so interesting. Here it is again. It's a Sunday, and wherever John finds himself, it's always the Lord's Day on Sunday. Even when Rome is calling the shots, even when Rome doesn't believe in the Lord, even when it's against the law, and it's a capital offense to be saying that Jesus is Lord. By the way, that's why they burned him. Did you know you could get out of all this trouble by just... Once a year, Rome lined up all the people of all their cities. I mean, Smyrna is a great example. If you ever go to Izmir, one of the prettiest cities in Turkey, the place is still there. I mean, that's why I love taking people to those places, because you can actually see where the event took place. But in Izmir and everywhere else in the empire, they'd line everybody up. The town clerk would be there with the roll of all the people that lived in the town because they were all taxpayers, so they pull out the taxpayer roll, and you come there, and you come in this long line, and finally get to the clerk, and she looks your name up, or he looks your name up, and now you're starting to get into all the Roman centurions are standing around. And the clerk goes like this, and, and there's a little bowl. It has powder in it, it's incense. Just past the bowl is the little flaming lamp, a, a torch of some kind. And all you had to do is take two of your fingers, reach in and get any amount of that powder, and just go like this, and kind of like you do, you know, when you find dust on something and you go like this and get it off your finger. You just went like this and let the dust, the incense dust, go down to that flame and it would go, you know, it would flame up and a little puff of smoke would come out. And by doing that, you were offering, because right in front of that flame was the bust of Domitian or Vespasian, or Titus, or Nero, or whoever was the current Roman to be worshipped. And all you, I mean, you didn't even have to say anything. 
And on the other side, a clerk handed you a little tiny slip of official Roman parchment that was called a libelli. It was a, you, you were freed from any, uh, you know, consequences of emperor worship for a whole year. I mean, you didn't have to crawl around on your knees and wear a Nero medallion. You just had your little slip of paper and you were set. The whole town, your turn. No one saw what you were doing except the clerk, the one handing out the slips, and the soldier. You didn't even deny Christ aloud, but through the motions you did. Do you understand that, that John was unwilling to do that? He pastored in the most prominent city, and all the others were massacred and butchered and eaten and burned. But because he was the last general of Christ, they decided to make a case out of his life, and they were going to exile him to hard labor and, and make him kill himself, you know, doing work for Rome. So John's in the spirit on the Lord's Day, didn't know when they were going to execute him, and that's the key to serving God in the end of days. And we already found out yesterday when the end of days is. It started when Christ was here, so we're really in the end of days. We have to stay full of the Spirit. We have to walk through life in Christ. We can live in the Spirit no matter what we're going through. Do we really believe that? Bonnie and I, our first um, together ministry, we both served the Lord until we got married apart, but then we started sharing ministry and still are. And our, our first shared ministry was when I got to John MacArthur's church, he assigned me to the 864 senior citizens of Grace Community Church. Now, there were 12,000 total attenders, but 864 of them were 65 and up, and he gave them to us. And we met with them, we taught them. That's when I started traveling. Huh. We went everywhere with them. Uh, they were California travelers, and I mean, they wanted me to take them on cruises and everything else. And John said, as long as you're teaching the word, you can do it. And I said, great. So, I mean, Bonnie and I started doing that. We even carried all of our kids. I mean, all of our kids used to be in the drawers of those cruise ships, you know. <laughs> the drawers are only this big, and so, you know, they were newborns, and we just put them in the drawer. And, and uh, it was wonderful. Our kids have seen the world as infants. But... You know what I learned about my 864 senior citizens? By the way, I always, I was doing a funeral every week at least. I'd, I would have four or five that were on, um, you know, the respirator thing, you know, where it, it's all over and it's all taped. Dialysis, I mean, it was just like many. You understand what I mean? It was a cross-section of, of elderly people in declining health. And you know what I learned my first weekend? There are only two kinds of senior citizen Christians, the complainers and the not complainers. I would go visit them in the hospital, and I would go to one, and, and they'd say, did you know that they changed the nurses here every four hours? I've been able to already witness to three people. And you know what else? The one that comes in with your pills stands there until you take it so you can talk to him. And I've shared my testimony three times. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not healthy, but... And that's not all. Uh, they have this little tray where they, I have to keep having water with a straw, and I can keep my Bible on it, and they're so sweet when I can't find my glasses. They help me. That's one kind. Do you know which group that was? 
the other ones. I can't believe it. I paid into that insurance all my life. I ring that buzzer. It takes them six minutes to come, and that's not all. My kids never visited me. I shouldn't have let them know what my estate was because now they aren't even visiting me. And that's not all. I haven't... And whether it was the doctor, the nurse, their family, the people at church, God never came into the conversation. Do you understand what I mean? And I learned that when you get weak, what you are down deep, most people can't hide anymore. And down deep, half of them really believed all this, really had lived it, really couldn't wait. They looked at death as going up the gangplank of the best cruise boat in the world. And you know how people are about cruises. They can't wait to go. And then the other half, it looked like they were backing toward heaven and they were kind of muttering the whole way. <laughs> that was a real powerful influence on our lives. And when I did those funerals every week, I mean, I began to love doing funerals because I went around to all 800 of my people and gave them a little paper. I said, I'd like you to write down your testimony for me because I'm going to have to share it before long. <laughs> they were, half of them were incensed. I mean, they can be tugging that, that oxygen tank behind them and they say, I am not old and I'm not dying. I said, I'm dying. You're not, you understand what I mean? And so I went around and gave out that sheet to all of them. We had a backdoor revival. You know what a lot of them found out? They didn't have a testimony to write on that sheet. And, and you know what's really powerful? To read at a funeral someone's actual, that they wrote this to be read to everybody that knew and loved them. Whoa, people sit up. I started in the first one. I said, I'd like to read what, what uh, Lyra gave to me. Uh, about a year before she graduated to heaven. You could see everybody sat up and they went, what did she want read at her funeral? Okay. It's time to go, almost. Ron, see, I'm really getting close here. Almost. We can live in the Spirit no matter where, what we're going through. Now, how do I know that? Because I know that no matter what you and I have gone through, I know someone in the Bible that's gone through something worse, and it's right there. Look at the best example of this in Lamentations 3, a chapter from God, and now this is my title. You'll probably title it something differently, but I wrote, with God you can make it through anything. So all of you, some of you didn't open your Bible to Revelation. Now that's part of word of life. So get that Bible out and go to Lamentations, okay? And I want you to see something that maybe you've never seen before in Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations is the Lamentations of who? Who wrote it? Jeremiah, and, and if I was teaching this at the Bible Institute, I would tell you that it's seven 22-verse poems that have been mangled into five chapters by Bishop Langton, who divided the Bible into chapters in the 1200s. He didn't understand that it was actually seven 22-verse poems. Now, what's nice is chapter 3 has how many verses? Someone look. 66. How many verses is in, are in chapter 1? 22. How many in chapter 2? 22. How many in chapter 4? 22. How many in, in 5? 22. How many in 3? 66. They're all poems. They're all acrostic poems. That means Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. 
The first verse is the letter A. The second verse is the letter B, starting with. And so it's just a magnificent poem by Jeremiah. Chapter 3, the center, the, the dead center of the book. Mathematically, you could figure out. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3's third poem ends at verse 22. So what's the dead center verse of the book? Verse 23 of our chapter 23. I mean, of our chapter 3. So what's verse 23 say? Everybody has probably heard that verse. They are new every morning. What are the next words? The summary of the whole book of Lamentations, which means moanings and cryings and wails and laments, is God is faithful. What is he faithful through? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man. This is the testimony of Jeremiah, kind of like John. They were very similar. In fact, they're palling around now because Jesus said in chapter 8 of Matthew that when the believers that were hearing his gospel get to heaven, what did Jesus say in Matthew 8? They're going to sit down at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when John finally died on Patmos, I mean in Ephesus after Patmos, he was probably palling around with Jeremiah. So they're very, they're, they agree with all this. But look at verse 1. Jeremiah said, I am the man who's seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath, this is his testimony of his life. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. Well, that's not very positive. Any of you old enough to remember Robert Schuller? He would not have liked this. <laughs> remember? Only positive, you know. Norman Vincent Peale. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. Now, that's a Hebrew poetic Remember, this is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. Do you know what he was saying? He's saying, I have broken physical health. Now, that's an eloquent way of saying it. My flesh is aged. My skin is aged. I'm not using, what is that porcelana? I don't know what it is to get the spots off. He didn't have any of that stuff. And he has broken my bones. What does that mean? He had osteoporosis. I mean, but he doesn't complain about it. He's just saying the truth. He has besieged me, verse 5. He has surrounded me with bitterness and woe. What does that mean? He had deep emotional strain. You bet he did. Have you read Jeremiah? God did not let Jeremiah get married. He said, you will never have a wife. I forbid you to get married. You will never have anybody waiting for you. You will never have a light on when you get home because their lights were burning oil and it had to be someone keeping it burning or it wouldn't be burning. You'll never have someone prepare a meal for you. You will never have the companionship. You will not ever have all the joys of marriage. Plus, his family didn't like him. Plus, Jeremiah worked 40 years preaching the gospel. If he was a word of life missionary, I think someone would have cut his support because he never had a single convert. 40 years. None. How would you like to read those prayer letters? Another month, and I was out in the street corner, and I preached all day long. And just like last month, nobody responded. People would send him back to school and say, teach him how to teach better or something. So he had a rough life, but now listen to verse 6. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. What, what are dead of long ago? They're the ones you go to the cemetery and it's all worn off. You don't even know who was buried there. On this. They're forgotten. And what he's saying is, I'm depressed. 
He says, I am in a dark place. Verse 7, he's hedged me in. I'm trapped. He's made my chain heavy. I'm burdened. Verse 8, when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. I feel out of touch with God. Is this in the Bible? This is very negative. Yeah. And yet, this is the man that wrote more words in his book than any other Old Testament book. There are more Hebrew words in the book of Jeremiah. He got to write the most words of any author of any single book in the whole Bible. It's longer than Psalms in words. This is, this is the longest voice for God of any book in the Bible. And yet, verse 9, he's blocked my ways That's with a heavy stone. That means he was frustrated. He's made my path crooked. He was confused. He's made me, verse 10, uh, he's been to me like a bear lying in wait. He's talking about the Lord, by the way. The he is not Jehoiakim, the, you know, the bad guy king. It's God. He's struggling. Wow. Like a lion in ambush. Verse 17, you've moved my soul far away from peace. <laughs> That's a poetic way of saying I'm anxious. I have forgotten prosperity, verse 17. That means he was sad. He said, my strength and my hope have perished. I'm weak and hopeless. And then look what he does. Verse 19, remember my affliction, my roaming. Verse 20, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. And then I recall to mind verse 21, therefore I have, and here's the first good word we found in the whole poem, I have hope. By the way, the fascinating thing is the Old Testament, Hebrew, was translated into the Greek of the New Testament because most of the Jews didn't know Hebrew that well in the dispersion, and so it's called the Septuagint, L-X-X, if you've ever heard of it. What that is is for Jews who didn't know Hebrew very well, they they assigned a Greek word to every Hebrew word. You know what that does for us? That gives us a New Testament equivalent for every word of the Old Testament. So we can see if God says the same thing. And you know what this, this word is uh, in verse 21, that word hope? It's the word hupo, which means under, meno, which means abide or to remain. So to remain under something and not let it destroy your hope in God is what hope is. But look what he says, verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Boom, there it goes. Great is thy faithfulness. Well, we can stay full of the Holy Spirit even through the worst of times. And John testifies of that. And he testifies that by Jesus giving the only picture of Jesus in the Bible. Now we're only on my 12th observation of the chapter. Do you see why the Bible Institute students have to take 20 hours to go through Revelation? And we can read the only word picture describing God the Son, Jesus Christ. It has seven elements. We see his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his hands, his mouth, and his face. And all that reminds John in us, because it's to the churches, plural, that the risen Christ is Jesus the conqueror. He's the son of man, the conqueror of Adam's fallen race. So he's the one that's come back to conquer and, and rescue us from the God of this world, Satan. And he's also, verse 13, is going to tell us in the midst of 9 to 20, 
that he's robed to his feet and has that golden sash. And did you know that is exactly... Now remember, Revelation has 404 verses, yet it quotes, alludes, and refers to over 800 different verses in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is like the switchboard connecting all the verses of the Old Testament and explaining and putting them in context and applying them in our lives. Jesus is the perfect priest. Now, we already know that from right Hebrews 5. He is the great high priest. He is the one who is acquainted with us, chapter 2. He is the one we can flee to to find grace and help in time of need, chapter 4. We know all that. But John puts the pictures in. And he says that his hair... He's, he's got this eternity. He's the ancient of days. His hair is as white as snow. His eyes, he's seeing those flaming fire. Now remember, Jesus is coming to John after he visited all the churches. And those flaming eyes were looking into the hearts and minds of all of God's people. He has those feet of the ultimate judge like fine brass crushing his foes. He his hand, that touch of Jesus, and he's holding the messengers of his church. That's why I, it never bothered me when people criticized me as, as a pastor. I was a pastor for 40 years, and boy, people, business meetings, they almost lose their, their I don't know what they lose. It, and, and, uh, and you know what I always thought of this verse? Jesus holds the messengers of his church in his hand. And I always thought, you are biting and you're biting the hand of Jesus. Your pastor is a messenger that was sent by God. But I'm sorry, I'm just getting waylaid by the text here. His mouth, Jesus is the word, he's the creator. We know that he spoke all things into existence. By him were all things created that are in heaven and earth and under the earth. Remember that? You know Colossians 1, 15 and 16 and 17. You know that. You know that, that he is the infinite, eternal God in human flesh. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact representation of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Don't you get it? I'm the exact representation of the Father. This is God the Father. And boy, the they would pick up stones. They, they didn't like God because they didn't like Jesus. And that's still going on, by the way. People don't like Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the Bible. That's why they don't like us. And his face. Jesus is the all-powerful Lord of glory with the face that's... His countenance was blazing like the sun that he created. And you know what he said? Will you just worship me? And you know what John does, he falls down in worship. Well, and I'm, now I'm starting to skip. If you notice, I went from 11 to 12 to 14. So I found lots of other observations, but it's time to go because there's so much we have to do. So Jesus is actively coaching me right now. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1 of Revelation. I was in Lamentations. Can you believe it? I was still there. Chapter 1, verse 12 of Revelation. Now remember, we're still sitting around the table at Starbucks. We all have our notebooks. We're all looking and noting our observations and lessons in our small group. And verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man. And I wondered, what are the lampstands? And look at verse 20. Uh, in the middle of the verse, the seven stars are the angels, the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. So this is a self 
defining uh, part of the Bible that God always explains what all these images mean. What he's saying is Jesus is now walking around among his churches looking at their lives and ministry. Jesus is seeking how to help us best reflect him as his lights in the world. Do you understand? We got saved, Jesus ascended to heaven, and people thought, he's up there and I'm down here slugging it out, going through this horrible thing. And God the Father says, John, you need to, Jesus is telling you to go tell them all that he isn't up there, that he is actually walking around coaching you. By the way, I I wrote a student from Wales. One of the students that we taught that was in one of the classes had a lifelong struggle with same-sex attraction. And people go, ugh, right? Yeah, but all the rest of people have a lifelong same, I mean, opposite-sex attraction, and we don't go, ugh, we go, hmm. See, it's sexual temptation. There's two kinds. Either you're tempted to, as a man, be attracted to women, or you're tempted as a man or woman to be attracted to other men or other women, but both are sexual temptations. So this guy struggled with the one we go, ooh, about, and he was ashamed and hiding it and had come to know the Lord, but he just was so defeated by that. And he wrote, and he said, you know what, I started going through and, and studying, like we're supposed to, all these chapters and writing down the lessons, and he said, I was writing down that Jesus was all-powerful, and, and whom the sun sets free will be free indeed. And the short of it is, he said, I'm just writing to let you know that with no fanfare or anything else, it came to the point where I believed the scriptures enough that I, I asked God to change my desirer. And he said he did. Now, he said, it's only halfway. He says, now I don't like anybody. <laughs> you know, he's kind of in the middle. But God is at work. Okay. Now, real quickly, this is what I'm concluding with. Your life coach is Jesus. You know, some of the some famous and business people and everybody else have life coaches. And I mean, either they're coaching you through your diet or they're coaching you through your exercise or your communication or whatever. Jesus knew right where John was and where every member of the churches were, not just physically, but he knew their spiritual condition. And the good news is Jesus reveals he will help each of us all through life to be all he made us to be. His plan is simple, and this is where we'll pick up tonight. Just listen to what I have to say and repent like our little student from Wales. And the same ending is on all seven letters. No matter how, where we are in the spectrum of obedience, Jesus has his plan to get us back on target and keep us there. See, he hasn't left us to finish life struggling all on our own. He says, you've never been alone, and I'm walking around, and I'm your life coach, and I'm going to help you be all I designed you to be. And as we'll see tonight, he has some pretty strong measures for people that aren't paying attention to him like we see in the seven churches. And I don't have time to do lesson 15, and that'll do tonight, that'll do tonight. Jesus is committed he gives a diagnostic report, just like COVID, <laughs> sin affects us, and on and on we could go, but let's pray early. Father in heaven, I thank you that you were so concerned about us, that you told our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that you had a message for all of us, and that he was to go down to that rocky island and give it to John, and John was to be your instrument to get it to us. Thank you that you want to coach us through life and that you're able 
to change our desires. You can change our fears. Like Jeremiah, you can show us even if we've gone through the hardest life on earth and we cry all the time, like he did, that you're faithful. And we just need to trust your plan. That's what we want to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. A minute. Amen. A minute. I, I, you are yielding one minute back. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Show John your appreciation. I, man, so good. He said to me, you know, Rich, all my lessons are designed for 50 minutes because that's a class period, and that's what he and his wife have dedicated their life to. My problem is when someone's speaking and they mention lyrics to a song, they will not leave my head. And so the lyrics from Lamentations in the steadfast love of the Lord, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, right? His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great is thy faithfulness. So as soon as you said it, my mind went, and it just kind of came out. I love that. Isn't that so good? Scripture is awesome. Uh, hey, we're going to take a 10-minute break. The Merrills are here. They're ready to go. She's going to play a little bit while you guys are taking your break, and then I'm going to sing you back in kind of old-fashioned tent revival style, okay? And then we got some stuff to give away. Ron always has something to say. We don't even know what it is, but it'll be great. We'll see you back here in 10 minutes.